When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Ben. And I'm Ben Bullen. Ben, today we have a topic that we're both very excited about, I know. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we get into the, uh, the actual meat of the podcast here, let's talk about where we were for that recent field trip. I know we've mentioned it a couple times, uh, you know, just the our, our day trip to uh, the High Museum of Art in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. Yes. We yeah. saw some remarkable cars. Yeah, we went to the Dream Cars exhibit at the legendary High Museum of Art down there in Atlanta, Georgia, which coincidentally is down the street from us. And while we were there, we saw some amazing vehicles that uh, ordinarily no one would get a chance to see. That's right, 17 of them. They had 17 concept or dream cars, if you will. Um, from all across Europe and the United States, they had Ferraris, Bugattis, Chrysler, BMW, GM, Ford, Porsche, a few independent makers as like well. Like Tasco and the Stout. Yeah, that's right. That that Norman Tim's car, the Norman Tim's special. Yeah. Uh, as soon as the doors open on the elevator, that's what you're uh, you're confronted with mm-hmm. that car. And honestly, Ben, it takes your breath away. Oh yeah. The second you see it, it's kind of you you a sharp inhale of breath. You know, I'm in for something special in this exhibit. And yeah. It truly was. And this exhibit is going on from, uh, it started late May, May 21st, goes through September 7th of this year. So if you're listening in 2014 and uh, it's before September 7th, do everything you can to get down to the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, Georgia, to see this exhibit because uh, you're not going to see a grouping like this uh, very often. No, these are cars that are rare enough that you would not normally see one of them, much less all of them at the same place. And just to emphasize the special that opens, that you see when the elevator opens, uh, Scott, you and I are walking around it, and I was trying to remember that quote about architecture where the guy, uh, I can't remember who said it, and a listener, uh, please write in and help me with this, uh, described architecture, beautiful architecture, as frozen music. And that car is like music that someone has turned into a car. Absolutely. That was a beautiful, one-of-a-kind car. And uh, the thing is about this exhibit, we got to kind of immerse ourselves in all 17 of these cars mm-hmm. for a good deal of time because we had studied them prior to and after. And today is kind of an extension of that uh, of that stuff that we studied during that time period when we were at the museum. So 
We are going to talk today about the 1941 Chrysler Thunderbolt, a car that you and I have, um, we stood two feet away from this car. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, because these are million dollar cars or million dollar plus cars, we were not able to climb inside them and, you know, open the hood or anything like that. We, in fact, there was a, uh, a no leaning policy that even on, you know, the, the press day when we were there shooting, right. we were unable to even kind of lean over the, the ropes a little bit. Um, but they're beautiful nonetheless, and we spent a lot of time walking around this one, really mm-hmm. checking it out, mm-hmm. really digging into the history of and the features of the, these cars. Right, and the Thunderbolt has a heck of a story behind it. It's called the Thunderbolt, of course, because there is only one ornament, only one piece of uh, decoration that's yeah. just for decoration's sake. S- superfluous, I guess. S- yeah, that's the perfect word, Scott, superfluous. And it's... Uh, a thunderbolt icon, just a jagged thunderbolt on either side of the car by the doors. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all they have. Yeah. Otherwise, it's relatively plain. It's got this uh, this amazingly smooth finish to it. Um, it's an envelope design. We'll get into the design as we talk about the body of this thing. But right. um, the, the history of the Chrysler Thunderbolt is so fascinating to me, and I can kind of step us through it. Sort of quickly, if you if you'd like. I mean, uh-huh. um, yeah. Before we get to some of the features, yeah. Actually, before we get to all of that, uh, let's just paint a little bit of a context, a little background before the Thunderbolt. Sounds good. Okay, so we know that during the 1930s, Chrysler had their art and color division, which had been part of their engineering department. But as the 30s progressed, Ray Dietrich at the time, uh, around 1935 or so, uh, is the first official stylist for Chrysler, and he got a he got a bum appointment, Scott, because you know that his first assignment was having to work with the airflow. Yeah, right. The airflow, which was a relatively unsuccessful Chrysler car from, uh, what, 1934? I think the production was from 1934 to something like 1937, maybe? Yeah, it wasn't very long. I, I think that's it. And um, it was, again, not successful commercially, but what it did was it set Chrysler apart from the other manufacturers in terms of design. And, um, I don't know, it kind of led the way for Chrysler's more conservative design, I guess, which, which happened in the 1950s, like mid-1955, when Virgil Exner's forward look kind of came about, you know, right. with the 300C. And the reason was because uh, this dramatic change in styling from the, the uh, you know the airflow was something that people didn't really appreciate as much as they do now looking back because now mm-hmm. you know people love those cars you know it's a collector's yeah. item it sits in museums a lot of, you know in a lot of places but you know looking back or I guess put yourself in the time mm-hmm. and in the time people just really didn't accept it as a uh, as a favorable design right because the idea of spending so much money. For something that looks so different, it seems risky. That's right. So they had kind of a, a somewhat tarnished design or the, the design reputation, I should mm-hmm, say, mm-hmm. Uh, between 1934 and about, well, about 1941 when this vehicle came out. Because um, around 1940, 1941, this is when, now this is interesting, Ben, designer Alex Tremulis. Now, if you remember Alex Tremulis, he was the guy who designed the Tucker 48. Yep. Uh, so he's a, a renowned designer, but he also worked for a company called Briggs Manufacturing. He worked in the styling department. Mm-hmm. And um, he thought, you know, that Chrysler could benefit from a couple of streamlined production cars. And this comes on the tail of Harley Earl's 1938 Buick Y job. And I know we're getting kind of off track here, but not really because this is the birth of dream cars, the birth of concept cars. No one had seen them prior to 1938. Right, yeah. In uh 19- 40, the idea of building a car just to show it to people or just to say, hey, here's an idea, 
uh, building a car almost like a business card of sorts for for a concept. This uh, this was new and very very strange. Why would you build a car just to be a product demo? Well, one guy that really loved this idea was Chrysler's KT Keller, who was then president of Chrysler Corporation between I think it was between 1935 and 1950. So he's relatively new. At the helm, um, he succeeded Walter P. Chrysler. As a matter of fact, you know the the founder of the company right. himself, yep. uh, because Chrysler had died in uh, in 1940. So just after that, K. T. Keller took over, and he saw you know Harley Earl's Buick wide job in 38, and didn't really want to be left out because no one else was doing this at the time. It was just General Motors, right? And so they said we need something, or he he thought you know we need something visual to complement our engineering and technology prowess because they really were. You know, a um, a forward-thinking company, even at, even then, and they had a lot of technology and an engineering advancements that they just weren't able to get out to the public because, again, they had this kind of bummer of a car at the time, the the airflow that mm-hmm. people were saying, well, I don't really know if I trust a Chrysler, you know, um, as far as design, but you know, they weren't looking at the engineering and the technology below that design. Right, they needed to get public opinion back on their side. And K.T. Keller and uh, Dave Wallace, who was also working with him at the time, uh, they did something that I think is very clever, Scott. They didn't pitch uh, Alex Tremulis on designing one dream car. They pitched him on designing two. Ah, that's right. And, you know, that this is this is a big deal, right? So mm-hmm. these are the, the first of Chrysler's dream cars. And the two cars, and we'll talk about them in just a second, but I do want to say that, uh, one one little side note here, even on our side note, I guess. Okay. Uh, before our side note. Yeah. Um, of the big three in the United States, you know, this is kind of brand new, like I said. So General Motors is doing it. Now Chrysler is jumping into it with these two that we're going to talk about. Ford was the only uh, company of the big three to not produce a dream car before World War II. Yeah, they were the holdout. They were. They, But, you know, shortly thereafter, they came out with a couple. And, you know, they had mm-hmm. other things going on. Like, in fact, one of Edsel's cars, one that he had designed himself for himself, uh, through another stylist was there on display at the High Museum while we were there. And we'll talk about that one at mm-hmm. some other point, mm-hmm. but not today. All right. So you got to think about this. At the time, Alex Tremulis was working with Crosley and American Bantam. He yeah. was also working for Briggs Manufacturing Styling, Styling Department. Um, you know, he, he was working with, um, who was the gentleman you mentioned, Ben? Um, Wallace, is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Dave Wallace. Dave Wallace. He was working with Ralph Roberts from Chrysler and Design. Um, it's just a lot of, a lot of people are, are coming together on these projects and they produced what we called, uh, you know, the first dream cars for Chrysler, which were the Thunderbolt and the Newport. Right. And what's interesting is that the, is that Ralph Roberts in his time working, uh, working with Alex Tremulous, they also, uh, were working for LeBaron, which was owned by Briggs Manufacturing, we've mentioned earlier and, a coach builder. A coach builder, exactly. And at the time, you know, if we put ourselves in the historical context here, the Depression already hit the United States. Uh, the corporate stylists like Harley Earl and uh, E.T. Bob Gregory are already taking a lot of coach-making work on. So LeBaron actually has a lot of time to dedicate to this. Ah, uh, Bob Gregory. I'm glad you said that name because yeah. that just sparked a memory. That was the guy that Edsel Ford was working with to create his own uh, special racer. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was the concept that we saw. But anyways, we'll, well, again, we'll get to that later. Right. Um, all right, so here's kind of the lay of the land. Now, the, Katie Keller gives LeBaron something like less than five months to build these cars. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and we're yeah. talking about a total of, a, you know, they're, they're anticipating to building something like 
Like, um, I think it was eight each is what they initially wanted. It may have been back down to six. So we're talking about 12 cars. And I've seen numbers as low as 90 days to prepare Ooh. for, uh, you know, the, the end of 1940, which would begin the 1941 auto show circuit. So, right. you know, they had to be ready for the New York auto show. And I think it was in October of 1940. Um, and this is like 90 days out from that show. And he says, I, I like these concept designs. Make them, you know, make them work. Make them uh, something that you know I can I can drive to and from the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as disturbingly common as it seems with a lot of these innovative cars, the designers and engineers are given very little time yeah, to make it. Yeah, that's right. So they want six Thunderbolts. They want six, six Newports. Ports. And and the thing about these cars has been that they're they're revolutionary in a lot of different ways. So they're they're. They're not only talking about just building six cars, which would be tough enough from the ground up, but they're right. talking about some really advanced features that, you know, at the time had only just been ideas, you know, pen on paper. Right, or even uh, science fiction. So uh, what do we mean by this? Do you want to talk about some of these features? Well, how about this, Ben? Before we talk about the the features of the Thunderbolt, let's talk about the namesakes for both of these cars, because oh, yeah. uh, that's kind of an interesting story as well. Maybe a little bit as a sidebar on the Newport itself, and then we'll get back to the Thunderbolt with its features. Perfect plan. Sound Perfect good? plan, Scott. Right. Okay, can I talk about the Thunderbolt? Because I'm, I'm crazy excited Please about this. Please do, one. yeah. All right. So uh, the Chrysler Thunderbolt is a heck of a cool name, but it's not just a name drawn out of the hat. Turns out the Thunderbolt is named after the land speed record holding car that Captain George Easton, Easton drove uh, at 357 and a half miles over the Bonneville Salt Flats back in 1938. Is yeah, that correct? get this, 1938, this guy is driving, it's a British uh, land speed record car, by the way, uh, 357 and a half miles per hour. And in 1938, that's, yeah. that's a remarkable <laughs> thing. Now, the, it was powered by twin Rolls-Royce V12 aero engines, and, yeah. it, and it weighed seven tons. This is a huge car. If you ever get a chance to look up the, the original land speed record Thunderbolt, yeah. You won't believe that this car ever went as fast as it did, but it, it truly did. And it's 30 feet long, by the way, guys. Oh, 30 feet long. That's another good fact. Now, now that's the Thunderbolt. Now, the Newport, this one's actually going to be named the Golden Arrow to begin with, and they changed the name at the last minute. So um, the, the Golden Arrow was another land speed record holder, and this was from 1929. And this one went 231.45 miles per hour, but it did it on Daytona Beach on the hard-packed sand. Now, Which, can, you, can you imagine... Yeah, if that was out on the salt flats, it would be a totally different story. Yeah, there's some interesting, interesting facts about this. Now, I mean, again, the hard pack sand, so you can watch, you can watch film of this attempt, you know, occurring. You can see this, this, uh, world record breaking attempt happening. And this is kind of cool, Ben, because you can see footage that they've taken from an airplane that was flying next to it, in car footage, and as well as, you know, the, the pass by from, you know, the spectators, because the beach was lined with people. There's the surf on the other side. The car is driving at 231 miles per hour on the sand as the the waves are crashing. That's next crazy. To it. it is crazy, and there's more than that. I mean, this was uh, this was a 925 horsepower, 23.9 liter W12 aero engine from Napier Lion, and get this, Ben, it was cooled by ice. It had no radiator. Yeah, I read about this, but okay, can you? Can we just take a second? I know there's such a sidebar and a sidebar, but can you take a second and tell me what's going on with okay, that? Okay, so there's no radiator because they wanted it to be streamlined. They wanted it to be smooth, right? Right. And, and take a look at, you know, do yourself a favor. Take a look at the Golden Arrow online. You'll see what I mean exactly. Very streamlined design. But on the side of this thing, there's big slabs on the side and these kind of like side pods. 
Yeah. And they loaded those things with ice. It was like coolers on the side. And the coolers kept the engine cool. And it wasn't, I don't know if they circulated anything or not. I don't think they did because it says no radiator. So that means no airflow was going over. Right, right, right. But the ice was there. They just loaded those chests with ice in order to keep the engines cool. And that's a massive engine. And again, it's traveling at 231 miles per hour. You know how hot a W12 aero engine is going to get without any airflow at 231 miles per hour? It's got to be extremely hot. So the ice was very effective, I guess. Um, And you can still see this car on display. I'm not sure where it is right now. I know that it's on display somewhere. It it survived. Uh, Well, that is incredible. And, I mean, it's still, to me, not credible that the ice could alone do that. Because it seems weird when you think about it, you know? Yeah, and the honest truth is, if you want to look at the reality of this. Now, when you look up both of these cars, the Thunderbolt and the Golden Arrow, which was later called, you know, the new Right, right. You're going to find that neither one of these show cars, these dream cars, really look like the namesake. I mean, they don't don't follow that exactly by any means. It was just great names, and, you know, they, they asked for permission to use the names in them because they had the attention of the public at the time. And that was a big deal because one of the headlines used to to market these cars was the measured mile creates a new motor car. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. And that's a great, and that's a, you know, reference to the salt flats. Mm -hmm. And that's also a great way to garner some public appreciation. Uh, I want to add one point though. You know what that reminds me of the, the Chrysler Thunderbolt and the Chrysler Newport. The namesake stuff reminds me of whenever you're watching television and you see that 
that little screen at the beginning or the end of a film and says, this was inspired by a true story oh, or based on. Yeah, inspired yeah. by, like, well, it's just a little bit of truth in there somewhere, right? Yeah. We threw in a, an army of zombies or whatever, but it's pretty much the same Some story. rock monsters or whatever. <laughs> Got it. Okay, I understand. All right, is so, that Noah? Is uh, that a Noah reference? That is a Noah reference. Yeah, very good, Ben. All right, so anyways, all right, this is... um. This is where we want to talk about the the Newport just a little bit, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because I think this leads into uh, the Thunderbolt nicely. And again, it was originally supposed to be named the Golden Arrow after uh, you know this world record holder, land speed record holder. Um, again, changed at the last minute. It, had, it was a it was what they called a graceful dual cow Phaeton design, which is so cool looking. Mm-hmm. Ben, I love these dual cow cars mm-hmm. because it has a back seat, you know, front seat that seats three behind a windshield, and then there's like a body section. And then and there's a back seat, a back seat with a windshield yeah. that also seats three people. And it has these just amazing, beautiful flowing lines. It's, it's really, really cool. Um, I think they were also um, fold down windshields, which is really cool. Had hideaway headlights, which we'll talk about in just a little bit as well. Yep. Um, and maybe maybe the coolest fact of, of all of the Newport. And if you look this up, you're going to see it right away. This was chosen as the pace car for the Indianapolis 500 in 1941. The cool thing about this is, as far as history goes, this is the only non-production car to ever pace the Indianapolis 500 ever. Oh, you're right, aren't you? It was not a production vehicle because, yeah. um, you know, only five of these were ever built. I mean, right. there's supposed to be six, I think, but they only got five ready. They had one ready for the show, you know, in, in October of 1940, uh, but the other four that followed, um, you know, they were the only ones. They were just the the last of its breed, I guess. And these cars were so well styled and so cool and everything that you know Walter P. Chrysler Jr. Remember his father had died in 1940. Right. Walter P. Chrysler Jr. kept one of these as his own personal car, and he used it to drive to and from work all the time. So a uh, lot like Harley Earl would do, um, heads of industry would often drive these concept cars to and from work around the town. You know, so like around Detroit, you're going to see. Heads of industry driving concept vehicles, which you don't see now by any means, right, never, because right. they're not roadworthy, suppose, or not checked out, I guess, you know, as far as the government regulations go. But at the time, you would see heads of industry doing this as kind of a status symbol. Wow. Yeah. Nice. So what a that, cool time. Yeah. I I can't really imagine, but I would love to see it now. That's a great point you make about why we don't see more modern concept cars just being driven on the road. There mm-hmm. are federal regulations which are not always adhered to in a concept car because you're not intending it to be street legal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's why you don't see more of that. Yeah, exactly, because I think they would if they could. Oh, yeah. Are you Who wouldn't? Yeah, you know, there's a uh, there's a modern version that I just should just briefly mention here, and we're not going to talk about it in depth, but okay. uh, there was a 1993 Chrysler concept vehicle called the Thunderbolt as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, who knows? I mean... Maybe someone took that on the road at some point, but I doubt it. Yeah, I'm skeptical, too. I look forward to hearing, because if it's true, uh, our listeners will tell us, because we've got some engineers in the crowd as well. So. Oh, you mean if anybody really does take these concepts on the street? Yep. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, write in. Let us know. Pictures preferred. Let's get back to the actual 41 Thunderbolt. Finally, right? Now, there's <laughs> so many cool facts about this thing. I mean, it's a, what was you know, start with a two-door design? Yeah. Okay, retractable hardtop, right? It was metal, mm-hmm. which was uh, push-button controlled. That is a big deal because, of course, that sounds like, not, you know, nothing to write home about uh, in 2014. But in 1941, 
Yeah, retractable hardtop too. I mean, I think the first one that's credited that with that or the production version isn't that the. Uh, I want to say it's a Ford from 1957, and I, I, for some reason, Crestliner comes to mind, but I'm not sure that's it. I couldn't, I couldn't bank on it. I can't. But, um, I can't. I do think it was a Ford. I don't know if it was the Crestliner. Okay, though. well, the name may uh, may escape me now, but I believe that Ford is credited with the first retractable hardtop production design, I guess. So, um, anyways, this is way back in 1941, um, so very, very advanced. Also, it had a lot of other push-button controlled devices. Yeah, exactly, Scott, because we've mentioned the retractable push-button hardtop as one of the primary design features, but it also had a couple of other impressive things, such as disappearing headlights. That's what they called it. Yeah, that's right. And that uh, also showed up on the Newport, I believe. Uh, you right. just mentioned that. And uh, the windows, they were also push-button windows, which were pretty unique for the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the rear deck lid, of course, which operated with the top. That makes sense, right? Yeah. And so you actually had to operate the, the rear deck lid, then the top, and then the deck lid again in order to make this thing close up. Well, but, let's, um, let's still also, advance. Yeah, yeah, totally. We should also talk about the materials used to build it because it had aluminum. Sure, that's right, an aluminum body. Um, now, they had kind of like this envelope design. And uh, the envelope design, I guess if the, the best way I've seen this described was by a guy named um, Hugo, and I'm going to pronounce the name here, Fau. It's P-F-A-U. And okay. Hugo, I'll just call him Hugo. Right. Uh, he he was um, a LeBaron designer, which was who was around during the time when this vehicle would have gone through LeBaron. So um, you know, firsthand account um, about the Newport body and the and the Thunderbolt design. And he's talking about you know what he said a couple of revolutionary ideas that came through the LeBaron company at the time, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so he said the Thunderbolt body design was the first example of the envelope theory of design with a single flowing surface enclosing the entire car. It was revolutionary at the time, of course, so much so that not a lot of them were built. But a decade later, the concept was being included in most of the really new post-war designs. And we'll see that, you know, all the way through, geez, I don't know, all the way through the 50s, of course, mm-hmm. um, up into the 1960s. I have a uninformed theory about that. Please, hit me with it. All right, uh, so during World War II, during the war years, one thing that becomes tremendously popular for men, women, children of all ages mm-hmm. uh, is aviation. Yes. The smooth aerodynamic design of aircraft. And that, I think, is why uh, what I think happened is that Chrysler was a little bit early to the game on this. Well, particularly jet design. Exactly jet design. And we saw so many of those uh, those jet design vehicles oh, yeah. at this exhibit. And, uh, and, it, and it plays through just about every vehicle that we saw there. Almost every vehicle. Almost. Almost. There were a couple of uh, standouts. <laughs> there were... I can tell we're thinking of the same one, Scott. Yeah. But this... I, I just mention this theory because I think it's interesting. It shows a different attitude or different aesthetic mm-hmm. in pre and post World War II America. But let's just drop some specs real quick because I know everybody's waiting to hear the specs of the Thunderbolt, right? Okay, we're gonna save the horsepower for last. Uh it's got a Spitfire inline eight cylinder engine, dual carburetors, three speed fluid drive Semi-automatic transmission. Ah, semi-automatic. Yeah, which we both know. Okay, do you want to, let's just look at this for a uh, second. Okay, well, the thing is that it used a, what they called fluid drive, and mm-hmm. that is using a torque converter to eliminate most of the shifting and most of the clutch work. Yeah, but you, not all of it. Exactly right. But the, the, the result of this whole thing was that it was smooth 
but it was kind of sluggish. Yeah, it wasn't as agile as you would expect well, from a vehicle with so many bells and whistles. Yeah, and that's something that you know when you shift into gear and you're in a you're in a hard gear and you're ready to go. But this is more of a, uh, a smooth. Uh, this is probably where the term slush box comes from. Right? It probably is. I mean, it like it likely is really. Um, yeah. So, so Ben, you, you mentioned you, you said you wanted to mention the horsepower last. What what was the horsepower of this massive car? Because when you see someone stand uh-huh. next to it, it's a big body. Well, this three hundred. That's a big baby. Yeah, that's a big baby. There's three hundred twenty four cubic inch Spitfire engine uh, produced a hundred and forty three horsepower. Wah, wah, wah. That's right. It's uh, that's. Uh, Relatively low. Now, again, that's not anything out of the ordinary for the time, though, because we find that some of these massive V8 engines had relatively low horsepower, unless you're talking about the land speed record cars, which, you know, those are those. Those are specialized. Well, those are the 23 and a half liter W12 engines and that type of thing. You know, those had major horsepower. but Not street legal in case anybody other than me was wondering. Well, of course. And, you know, the thing is, you know, these were production engines that they put into their concept vehicles. And, you know, they use what they had, and 143 horsepower out of a straight eight, that probably was you know, ordinary at the time. Right, exactly. Expected. All right, so we've talked a little bit about the specs, and I think we've done our due diligence with that sluggish slush box shifting. I can't believe I got through that. Hey, not bad. I've yeah. got a tongue twister for you then. Okay, we've got to talk about uh, the some other stuff on here, starting with, what do you think, the chassis? Uh, the chassis, I just want to mention the chassis because, uh, you know, that gets overlooked occasionally on these things. So I want to say that uh, the chassis or the frame of this whole thing came from a 1940 Chrysler Saratoga. But this was also called the Chrysler Crown Imperial Special. Uh, so I think a lot of people will recognize it from that name rather than the Saratoga. Yeah. And uh, how about this? Let's get back to a couple of the uh, the body features because we mentioned the aluminum body, you know, the envelope design. Mm-hmm. But what about that chromium band that goes around the whole thing? Okay, this is why we had a little bit of qualification when we're talking about the one decoration, the Thunderbolt. Mm-hmm. That chromium band doesn't actually do anything for the car, but it does uh, at least – they intended it to do something psychologically to people who saw the car. It's supposed to enhance the appearance of speed. Now, whether it does or not, I mean, that's up to debate, I suppose. But but take it away and take a look at what the car would look like. I mean, it would be exactly. rather plain. Yeah. So, you know, trying to keep the thing aerodynamic and, and smooth and sleek and everything, uh, mm-hmm. this is really one of the very few areas where they could do any kind of exterior design that, uh, that, uh, that made a difference, I guess. And it... Why is it so important that this car makes such a difference? That leads us to the purpose of the Thunderbolt uh, and why they, I don't know. Can I let the cat out of the bag here? Or do you want to save production numbers? No, I'll save production numbers for the end. Okay. I mean, there's there's one little thing I'd like to mention about that. Uh, it was, I guess, part of that look, you know, the, the chromium band at the bottom. Right, yeah. Part of that look was inspired by the Bud Streamliner trains of the day. Again, look at Bud Streamline trains from the mid-1930s. Beautiful. These are the ones that show up on, on uh, you know, oil paintings with other streamlined cars next to them. You know the yeah, type of artwork like I'm talking about. retro futuristic. Yeah, very, it? very cool yeah. design from the Bud, from the Bud Company. So um, it had a large curved glass windshield, which was the largest attempted at the time. It also had a wraparound grill bar, but not a grill. Uh, so this is kind of like a bumper, I guess you'd call it, and yeah. the, which later kind of influenced, I guess, the Chrysler Harmonica Grill. And you can look uh-huh. up Chrysler Harmonica Grill and see what that is and, and then look at the back of the Thunderbolt and kind of take a look at the way maybe it influenced the design 
later in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe one last thing that I'd like to mention about the, the exterior design of this thing would be those hidden headlamps again. Mm-hmm. Um, they appeared later on and not much later in 1942 on the DeSotos, which were part of Chrysler at the time. Right. So we can see the influence of these concept cars in production. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, but it happens much, much later as does with a lot of concept vehicles. I mean, some of the stuff doesn't come around until decades later. Now, there's a story here that we should tell on the air, and that is the story of what happened to the Thunderbolts after they were, after they were finally built in that mad rush between 90 days to five months or yeah. whatever they yeah. say it is. That's right. So we talked about, what, eight or possibly as few as six right. uh, was the production number, the planned production number, mm-hmm. but they only built five. Now, they only got five done in time because it was the, the rush order or whatever, right? Right. So five were built. And uh, I've also seen, again, this is another, uh, you know, conflicting bit of information. I've seen the number at six as well. So, I, but I say five. I'm going with five too, Scott, because I've seen six, but the stuff that in the course of our research, everything else was saying five. All right. So maybe there's some secret thunderbolt in a, what a barn find that would be. Uh, it would be. So let's just say this. There were six planned, five were built. Yep. But there are four known to exist today. Right. There are only four. Of the five that were built, each had a uh, different kind of look and feel. Each had a different color. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why you'll hear about some particular Thunderbolts have their own last names or their own their own slang names like the copper car. Yeah. Now right? The one we saw was red with uh, with a kind of silver looking chromium trim right. ring around the bottom. And we didn't get to see the top because it was retracted at the time. So mm-hmm. I don't know what color the top was on that particular vehicle. But I've seen some that are green with a, um, it looks like a copper band on the bottom. Yeah. And a copper top. That's a pretty unique, um, you know, color combination. I've seen right. silver. I've seen, I think I've seen black or maybe a midnight blue. Uh, there's some really interesting color combinations that happen with these things. And that's really about the only difference between them. Of course, you know, they're all hand built. So they're all going to be just slightly. Slight variations. Yeah. Slightly different between all of them. So these things go out at the, the New York Auto Show is when when these things premiere, and the Thunderbolts go across the country uh, trying to redeem Chrysler's name, yeah. essentially, and saying, hey, this aerodynamic aesthetic is not only not a bad idea, it's a great idea. Hey, watch what happens when I push this button. That's what they were doing around the country, and people loved it. Right. It's early on in the, in the days of, you know, concept vehicles or dream cars, if you will. So, you know, these were kind of a brand new thing, and these these auto shows and these publicity tours that they would go on were wildly popular. Now, the story doesn't end here, Ben. No. They, uh, they were able to, and this is unheard of now, they were able to sell these cars after this publicity tour, these these six hand-built cars. They sold them to wealthy consumers, and the prices started at a pretty low price, right? A pretty low price nowadays. It sounds low. It's uh, $6,000 back then. Okay, Ben, and I've done a, uh, a bit of an inflation calculator Calculation, I guess. Of course, yes. All right, so wouldn't be car stuff without it. I said a low price, but uh, you know, honestly, looking at this number, it's not so low. Really, it sounds low now. All right, six thousand dollars in nineteen forty-one. Hang on, is equal in two thousand fourteen to ninety-seven thousand two hundred eighty-two dollars and eighty-six cents. So that that is expensive. Now, again, we're coming off the tail end of the depression, the Great American Depression. And right. uh, and holy cow, who can afford a ninety-seven thousand dollar car in nineteen forty-one? Probably not a lot of people, right? I mean, 
Yeah, just a few. And they've only gone up in value, of course. I mean, you know, that's a 2014 number. One of these sold at uh, something an auction called the Automobiles of Amelia Island, which I'm assuming uh, goes along with the Concours event, which happens at Amelia Island. Right. And this was back in 2009, and the auction price, Ben, it sold for $687,500. Wow. So not bad. We were standing next to a car that was worth 700000 bucks. Yeah, and that wasn't the uh, most expensive one there either. <laughs> definitely not, but uh, but it was definitely one of the most impressive, I think. So if you have a chance to check out a Thunderbolt in person, you really should because there are they're probably not ever going to be in production again. Although people have made some attempts. Ah, uh, yes, there have been some uh, some knockoffs, some some uh, fiberglass bodies made, things right. like that. Yeah, so you can always expect things like that. Stuff like that will happen with any with any car like this. You can see uh, the genuine article online, and there are plenty of. Uh, there, there are plenty of other ways to check it out second or third hand. But again, if you have a chance to check it out in person, I think that I'm the kind of guy who thinks you can't ever beat the in-person experience. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. So something you'll always remember. Right. So Scott, I have to ask your final verdict here. Was that your favorite car in the exhibition? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, I'm going to say, I'm going to say no. All Even right. though it was interesting, and I yeah. think that it was one of the standouts. It was it was really unique, beautiful, you know, everything that it should be for a museum exhibit. But as far as my favorite from that, that group of 17 that we saw, uh-huh. I'm going to say no. All right. Well, if you'd like to learn what Scott's favorite car was, stay tuned. What? You're not going to answer the question yourself, the one that you just <laughs> asked? Was it your favorite? You can't uh, skate out on this that easy. Bro. All right. You caught me. You caught me sneaking out the back of this so podcast. So was it your favorite? It was not. Mm-hmm. It was not. And it's a tough call to make. This is a beautiful car. It's a work of art. Um, of course, if they were to offer me... Uh, one of those cars, I would say, oh gosh, thank you, and take and take it. But if I could choose one as my favorite, unfortunately, it's not going to be the Chrysler Thunderbolt, yeah. as amazing as it is. I mean, it was beautiful, and it was it was cool to stand next to, and it was really neat to kind of look over as much as we could and and talk mm-hmm. about it today. But again, out of that seventeen, I don't know. I just don't think that was it. Yeah, we were in an embarrassment of riches, you guys. Uh, so. We'll go ahead and say thanks to our super producer, Noel, as always, there behind the board for us. And, Scott, you and I are going to head out because we have more cars to explore. Is that correct? That's exactly right. We're going to uh, go a little bit further back in history. A little bit further back in history. So if you would like to time travel with us, uh, tune in for our next episode Um you want to go ahead and spoil it, or should we keep it a secret? Hey, why not? Let's just uh, let the cat out of the bag. We'll just uh, tell them we're going to talk about the 1936 Stout Scarab. Yes, yes. So go ahead, and before you hear our next episode, check out a picture uh, of this vehicle and let us know if you think it's beautiful or uh, repulsive. Or if it's worthy of a podcast, but I'll tell you, once you hear what we have to say about it, I think you'll understand that it's more than worthy. It's it's an awesome car as well. Absolutely. So uh, whether this podcast finds you sitting, flying, or driving, we hope that you're having an amazing time. And we hope that you had at least half as much fun listening to this as we have had making it. Ooh, I stumbled a little bit on that last one. We better get out of here. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can check out 
every podcast we've ever made on our very own website, carstuffshow.com, and you can always send us an email directly. Our address is carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.